Chapter Two of Jacqueline of Golden River by H. M. Egbert. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Two, Back in the Room. The situation had become more preposterous than ever. Two hours before, it would have been unimaginable. One hour ago I had merely been offering aid to a young woman in distress. Now she was occupying my rooms, and I was hurrying along Tenth Street, careless as to my destination, and feeling as though the whole world was crumbling about my head because she wore a wedding ring. Certainly I was not in love with her, so far as I could analyze my emotions. I had been conscious only of a desire to help her, merging by degrees into pity for her friendlessness. But the wedding ring! What hopes, then, had begun to spring up in my heart? I could not fathom them. I only knew that my exultation had given place to profound dejection. As I passed up the street, the taxicab which I had seen at the east end came rapidly toward me. It passed, and I stopped and looked after it. I was certain that it slackened speed outside the door of the old building, but again it went on quickly until it was lost to view in the distance. Had I given the pursuers a clue by my reappearance? I watched for a few moments longer, but the vehicle did not return, and I dismissed the idea as folly. In truth, there was no reason to suppose that the man I had seen in Herald Square was connected with the two others, or that any of the three had followed us. No doubt the third man was but a street loafer of the familiar type, attracted by Jacqueline's unusual appearance. And, after all, New York was a civilized city, and I could be sure of the girl's safety behind the street door lock and that of my apartment door. So I refused to yield to the impulse to go back and assure myself that she was all right. I must find a hotel and get a good night's sleep. In the morning, undoubtedly, I would see the episode in a less romantic fashion. As I went on, new thoughts began to press on my imagination. Such an event as this, told in any gathering of men, why, they would smile at me and call me the victim of an adventuress. The tale about the father, the assumed ignorance of the conventions, how much could be believed? Had she not probably left her husband in some Canadian city and come to New York to enjoy her holiday in her own fashion? Could she innocently have adventured to Daly's door and actually have succeeded in gaining admission? Why, many a would-be gambler had had the wicket of the grill slammed in his face by the old colored butler. Perhaps she was worse than I was even now imagining. I had turned up Fifth Avenue and had reached Twelfth or Thirteenth Street when I thought I heard the patter of the Eskimo dog's feet behind me. I spun around, startled, but there was only the long stretch of pavement wet from a slight recent shower, and the reflection of the white arc-lights in it. I had resumed my course when I was sure I heard the pattering again, and again I saw nothing. A moment later I was hurrying back toward the apartment house. 
my nerves had suddenly become unstrung. I felt sure now that some imminent danger was threatening Jacqueline. I could not bear the suspense of waiting till morning. I wanted to save her from something that I felt intimately, but did not understand, and at which my reason mocked in vain. And as I ran, I thought I heard the patter of the dog's feet pacing mine. I was rounding the corner of Tenth Street now, and again the folly of my behavior struck home to me. I stopped and tried to think. Was it some instinct that was taking me back, or was it the remembrance of Jacqueline's beauty? Was it not the desire to see her, to ask her about the ring? Surely my fears were but an overwrought imagination, and the strangeness of the situation, acting upon a mind eagerly grasping out after adventure, being set free from the oppression of those dreadful years of bondage. I had actually swung around when I heard the ghostly patter of the feet again close at my side. I made my decision in that instant and hurried swiftly on my course back toward the apartment house. I was in Tenth Street now. It was half-past two in the morning and beginning to grow cold. The thoroughfare was empty. I fled, a tiny thing, between two rows of high, dark houses. When at last I found my door, my hands were trembling so that I could hardly fit the key into the lock. I wondered now whether it had not been the pattering of my heart that I had heard. I bounded up the stairs. But on the top story I had to pause to get my breath, and then I dared not enter. I listened outside. There was no sound from within. The two rooms that I occupied were separated only by a curtain, which fell short a foot from the floor and was slung on a wooden pole, disclosing two feet between the top of it and the ceiling. The rooms were thus actually one, and even that might have been called small, for the bed in the rear room was not a dozen paces from the door. I listened for the breathing of the sleeping girl. My intelligence cried out upon my folly, telling me that my appearance there would terrify her, and yet that clamorous fear that beat at my heart would not be silenced. If I could hear her breathe, I thought, I would go quietly away and find a hotel in which to sleep. I listened minute after minute, but I could not hear a sound. At last I put my mouth to the keyhole and spoke to her. "'Jacqueline!' I called. The name sounded as strange and sweet on my own lips as it had sounded on hers when she told it to me. I waited. There was no answer. Then a little louder, "'Jacqueline!' And then, quite loudly, "'Jacqueline!' I listened dreading that she would cry out in alarm, but the same dead silence followed. Then, out of the silence, hammering on my eardrums, burst the loud ticking of the little alarm clock that I had left on the mantel of the bedroom. I heard that, and it must have been ticking minutes before the sound reached me. Perhaps if I waited a little longer I should hear her breathing. 
The alarm clock was one of that kind which, when set to repeat, utters a peculiar little click every two hundred and eighth stroke owing to a catch in the mechanism. Formerly it had annoyed me inexpressibly, and I would lie awake for hours waiting for that tiny sound. Now I could hear even that, and heard it repeat and repeat itself, but I could not hear Jacqueline breathe. I took the key of the apartment door from my pocket at last and fitted it noiselessly into the lock. I stood there trembling and irresolute. I dared not turn the key. The hall door gave immediately upon the rooms without a private passage, and at the moment when I opened the door I should be practically inside my bedroom save for the intervening curtain. Once more I ventured, "'Jacqueline! Jacqueline!' There was not the smallest answering stir within. And so, with shaking fingers, I turned the key. The door creaked open with a noise that must have sounded throughout the empty house. I recollected then that it was impossible to keep it shut without locking it. The landlord had long ago ceased to concern himself with his tumble-down property. I caught at the door edge, missed it, and tripping over a rent in the cheap mat that lay against the door inside, stumbled against the table edge and clung there. And even after I had caught at it and stayed my fall, that infernal door went creaking, creaking backward till it brought up against the wall. The room was completely dark except for a little patch of light high up on the bedroom wall which came through the hole the workmen had made when they began demolishing the building. I hesitated a moment, then I drew a match from my pocket and rubbed it softly into a flame against my trouser leg. I reached up to the gas above the table, turned it on, and lit the incandescent mantle, lowering the light immediately. But even then there was no sound from behind the curtains. They hung down close together, so that I was able to see only the gas-blackened ceiling above them, and, underneath, the lower edge of the bed-linen, and the bed-frame at the base, with its enameled iron feet. The sheets hung straight, as though the bed had not been occupied. But, though there was no sound, I knew Jacqueline was at the back of the curtains. The oppressive stillness was not that of solitude. She must be awake. She must be listening in terror. I went toward the curtains, and when I spoke I heard the words come through my lips in a voice that I could not recognize as mine. "'Jacqueline!' I whispered. "'It is Paul. Paul, your friend. Are you safe, Jacqueline?' Now I saw, under the curtains, what looked like the body of a very small animal. It might have been a woolly dog or a black lambkin, and it was lying perfectly still. I pulled aside the curtains and stood between them, and the scene stamped itself upon my brain as clear as a photographic print forever. The woolly beast was the fur cap of a dead man who lay across the floor of the little room. One foot was extended underneath the bed, and the head reached to the bottom of the wall on the other side of the room. 
He lay upon his back, his eyes open and staring, his hands clenched, and his features twisted into a sneering smile. His fur overcoat, unbuttoned, disclosed a warm-knit waistcoat of a gaudy pattern, across which ran the heavy links of a gold chain. There was a tiny hole in his breast, over the heart, from which a little blood had flowed. The wound had pierced the heart, and death had evidently been instantaneous. It was the man whom I had seen staring at us across Herald Square. Beside the window Jacqueline crouched, and at her feet lay the Eskimo dog, watching me silently. In her hand she held a tiny, dagger-like knife with a thin, red-stained blade. Her gray eyes, black in the gaslight, stared into mine, and there was neither fear nor recognition in them. She was fully dressed, and the bed had not been occupied. I flung myself at her feet. I took the weapon from her hand. "'Jacqueline!' I cried in terror. I raised her hands to my lips and caressed them. She seemed quite unresponsive. I laid them against my cheek. I called her by her name imploringly. I spoke to her, but she only looked at me and made no answer. Still it was evident to me that she heard and understood, for she looked at me in a puzzled way, as if I were a complete stranger. She did not seem to resent my presence there, and she did not seem afraid of the dead man. She seemed, in a kindly, patient manner, to be trying to understand the meaning of the situation. "'Jacqueline!' I cried. "'You are not hurt? Thank God you are not hurt! What has happened?' "'I don't know,' she answered. "'I don't know where I am.' I kneeled down at her side and put my arms about her. "'Jacqueline, dear,' I said, "'will you not try to think? I am Paul, your friend, Paul. Do you not remember me?' "'No, monsieur,' she sighed. "'But then how did you come here, Jacqueline?' I asked. "'I do not know,' she answered, and a moment later, I do not know, Paul. That encouraged me a little. Evidently she remembered what I had just said to her. Where is your home, Jacqueline? I do not know, she answered in an apathetic voice, devoid of interest. There was something more to be said, though it was hard. Jacqueline, who was that? Who? she inquired, looking at me with the same patient, wistful gaze. "'That man, Jacqueline, that dead man.' "'What dead man, Paul?' She was staring straight at the body, and at that moment I realized that she not only did not remember, but did not even see it. The shock which she had received supervening upon the nervous state in which she had been when I encountered her, had produced one of those mental inhibition in which the mind, to save the reason, obliterates temporarily not only all memory of the past,
but also all present sights and sounds which may serve to recall it. She looked idly at the body of the dead man, and I was sure that she saw nothing but the worn woodwork of the floor. I saw that it was useless to say anything more upon this subject. "'You are very tired, Jacqueline?' I asked. "'Yes, monsieur,' she answered, leaning back against my arm. "'And would you like to sleep?' "'Yes, monsieur.' I raised her in my arms and laid her on the bed, telling her to close her eyes and sleep. She was asleep almost immediately after her head rested upon the pillow. She breathed as softly as an infant. I watched her for a while until I heard a distant clock strike three. This recalled me to the dangers of our situation. I struck a match and lit the gas in the bedroom but the yellow glare was so ghastly and intolerable that I turned it down. And then I set about the task before me. End of chapter 2 Recording by Roger Moline